Whenever there's a dispute around money, the halacha is that we always give the claimant the first opportunity to present his case in front of the courts. And the shach says the reason for this is because we need to consider the possibility of moideh b'miktas, which means that if you claim a certain amount from me and I only acknowledge part of the claim, I would then be required to take a shavua, an oath on the balance. There's an incredible lesson in this, a spiritual lesson about us and how we progress as Jewish people and how we face off to our own yetzer hara. Mina Pasuk, quoting on the Pasuk that says, Mi bal elehem, any person who has an issue should approach them, the judges. The Gemara concludes from this, that we always give precedence to the claimant, the one who's asking for money from somebody else, to put his case forward first. Habaal Devorim, as read into the Pasuk, the one who has an issue, the person who's making a claim, Yagish Devorov Elehem is the one who has to approach, or he's given the rights to approach the judges first. The Shach explains that the intention of Yakipashta Saloshan, as is indicated in the clear language of the Pasuk, is that the Basin always first hears the arguments of the person who claims that they are owed money. And then after that, you hear the defense of the person who they're claiming from. Now, why does this have a practical application? Because when Afkamina Lepoel, the practical application is, depending on whose argument you hear first, will have an impact, it will have an impact on the principle called that if a person makes a partial acknowledgement of owing money, then they are required to take an oath. So, Dinu, let's explain this concept of Moida Bemiktas. The law is, that a person cannot be considered to have acknowledged part of the claim, in which case, let's assume that he does acknowledge part of the claim, at which point he would be required by the Torah to take an oath that he doesn't owe any more than what he has acknowledged. That can only apply, Ella. Logically, a person can only be considered to have acknowledged part of the claim if the claim has been made. So the toivea, the claimant says, you owe me a hundred dollars, and the guy says, I only owe fifty. Well, the fifty is now only considered partial acknowledgement because we know what the full claim was, a hundred. But let's say it was the other way around. And a guy puts up his hand in front of the court and says, I owe Yankel $50. And then Yankel comes along and he says, what do you mean 50? You owe me 100. That would not fall into the category of an individual who is acknowledging part of the claim. And therefore, therefore, as far as the Torah is concerned, this individual is no longer required to take an oath that he does not, in fact, owe the full hundred dollars. It's quite logical, right? The reason behind the saloche is the cave and shahoyo The logic is this: this guy who claims he only owes fifty dollars really, by rights, owed a hundred dollars even before they appeared in court. He hasn't paid the money that he owes. That's why we're in court. If he had paid the money, there'd be no court case. Why are we in court? Because he hasn't paid what he owes. 
Al-Kain, because this is a scenario where he owes money and has not paid it or has even refused to pay it, Therefore, the first response or the first testimony that we want to hear is from the claimant, because we want to force this individual who is refusing to pay into a situation where the halacha will require him to take an oath, which hopefully will encourage him to pay. So that's the logic. He owes the money, doesn't want to pay it. Therefore, we give the first right of argument to the claimant, and therefore hopefully force his hand that he'll actually pay, or at the very least take an oath, which is quite a serious thing. The Gemara then continues and says, Esau, it says as follows, There are occasions where we do allow the person who is being claimed from to have the first argument in court. When would that be? What scenario? If it's a scenario where his assets have depreciated in value, we actually give him the first right of argument. Now, we have to understand why that is. Obira Shach, who explains to us that the whole issue at hand over here is the Moedem Emiktas issue. Following on from what he explained about why you first give the claimant the opportunity to appear first in court, because we want to create a scenario of Moedem Emiktas. So the Shach continues. If the reason that this fellow has not stepped up to pay the money that is being demanded of him, it's not because he's being difficult or because he refuses to pay. It's rather because he's under duress, financial duress. Because his assets have depreciated, so he can't sell them off to get the money easily to repay the loan. Or alternatively, because he's actually eager to repay, and therefore he's trying quickly to sell some assets to free up some cash so that he could repay the loan. And of course, when you're rushing to sell things, you cannot demand the greatest price, so therefore his assets are depreciated. As I niskokin and his betchila, then we'll give him the first rights to appear in front of the court. So it's quite logical, right? If the the person we're claiming from is being difficult, then we're going to be harsh with him and push him into a scenario where the claimant goes first, therefore he's now moedemimictus and has to take an oath. If it appears that he's not trying to be difficult, he's under real financial strain, then we'll cut him some slack and allow him to appear in the courts first. Now one thing we know is an axiom in Hasidus is, Whatever is discussed in the revealed elements of Torah is in fact represented in spiritual service of Hashem as well. The other, I mean, in fact, to the contrary, because Torah originally was this hidden treasure of Hashem's up on high. And as the Altarebbe describes in Tanya, eventually it evolved and it descended until eventually it became wrapped in the real experiences of this world but be'etzem in truth what is the Torah divine it's actually the other way around it's not that there's something expressed in the revealed part of Torah and let's track back and find a spiritual lesson it's because Torah is fundamentally spiritual and represents a spiritual lesson it also translates into something practical in this world even more than that, there are even certain subjects that you actually cannot fully interpret until you get to their spiritual perspective. 
and that's going to apply to our conversation over here. Because, at first glance, the Shach's explanation actually does not seem clear at all. Miloshin Rezal, let's see, what did the Gemara say? The Gemara said, that you always give the claimant first rights to present his case in front of the courts. And the Gemara said, Stam. It didn't put any restrictions on what scenario we're dealing with where the claimant goes first. It sounds like it's an axiom. Mashma, that implies, So that would imply that the fact that you allow the claimant to put his argument first would apply to a range of scenarios, not only the Moedim Amikta scenario. Whereas the Shach seems to home in on a particular example and tell us From the Shach's perspective, it seems like the only time where it's logical for us to put the claimant first is if it could create a scenario of Moida Why? Why is the Moida Memictas the big issue over here, according to the Shach? It is something you need to explore spiritually in order to understand properly. We'll understand this properly by exploring the spiritual implications of this statement. Because in spiritual terms, generally, when we're talking about claims and counterclaims in the spiritual environment, there is almost always an element of, Okay, I acknowledge part of what you want from me. So first let's work out who is the claimant in spiritual terms. Now in legal terms, the claimant is always the person who actually seems to be in the right and the person withholding the money typically seems to be in the wrong. In spiritual terms, the claimant is not necessarily the innocent party. The one who makes claims on us as Jewish people is our Yetzirah. How's the Yetzirah a claimant? Because this is the strategy of the Yetzirah. First, the Yetzirah trips us up and gets us to do something which is contrary to the Torah. Or if, it, if the Yetzirah can't entrap us in a real Avera, then at the very least, the Yetzirah gets us to do something which is less than it should be in our spiritual service of Hashem. Now we've fallen. We've, we've fallen into the trap. We've done what is wrong. Then the Yetzirah comes with a claim. Seeing as I got this Jew to listen to me and to follow me into this entrapment, that Jew should be handed over to me and I should now control his life and his decisions. So the claim of the Yetzirah from us is, I should now control you. You listened to me, now I should be your boss. Now we're the defendant. And our defense is, whoa, I'll only acknowledge part of what you're saying. Yes, I will acknowledge that I stumbled and sinned. But I definitely did not invest my entire self into that Avera. I'm willing to acknowledge that a little bit of me got involved in the Avera. Because the essence of my soul is beyond being contaminated by sin. Because even at the time I did the Avera, I was actually completely loyal to Hashem at the same time. So the essence of my soul is untainted. Not only that, we say, we say, I came beyond that. 
Even if you had to analyze not the essence of who I am, but the various cap- capacities of my soul, the characteristics of my soul. Not only at my deepest level. Every single Jewish person, a layer deeper, has goodness. Beyond that, the Gemara tells us that even the so-called sinners, wanton sinners of Israel, are filled with mitzvahs like a pomegranate is filled with seeds. And when we say that something is full, we mean full, which means what is a Jew? By definition, an individual who is filled with mitzvahs. Therefore, whichever Jewish person you may be speaking about, even at the lower end of the spiritual scale, it is not possible that this should be somebody who is completely invested in something against what Hashem wants. Not possible. I'm not I'm not willing to say that I'm fully invested in the Eitzahor's shenanigans. This concept, which impacts every level of the Jewish community, even the person who is a so-called tzaddik, about whom we say, that there is no person who is an absolute tzaddik and never sins, even if only means lacking in full, absolute commitment to Hashem. Or on the other end of the spectrum, a person who is truly a Russia. As we've said, even the so-called sinner is filled with mitzvahs like the pomegranate is filled with seeds. So whichever Jew we're talking about when they confront the claim of the Yetzirah, they're only willing to acknowledge some level of buying into the Yetzirah's pitch. That is Merumez Bepasuk Shemimeni Yalfin and Din Moide Bemiktas. This concept is actually alluded to from the Pasuk in our parasha that describes the entire concept of Moide Bemiktas. What's the Pasuk? Akol Tvar Pesha Goimer. All scenarios where a person may have damaged or lost another person's item. And he says, Ashayoimar, the, de- the defendant says, Kihuze. These are the facts. What does Kihuze mean? Now we're talking from a spiritual perspective. When you look from what this Pasuk is supposed to represent about how we serve Hashem in a spiritual context, what's the claim the Yitzhahara has? The things you willingly did against Hashem. Which would refer to a person who chooses of their own volition to rebel against what Hashem wants in their service of Hashem. That's one category. The Pasuk also looks at another category, something that got lost. Which implies not that a person rebelled and rejected Hashem, but they lost their way a little bit, and something isn't quite as it should be. Which means the person is doing their shlichus, but not to the best of their abilities. Now, what happens when a person does not do their shlichus to the best of their abilities, and certainly what happens when a person rebels, some element of the neshama gets lost in that process. And the four examples used in the, in the Pasuk, which are about an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or a garment, they represent the four different ways that the animalistic part of our character can hijack our neshama 
and waylay us against or away from what Hashem wants. And there's a famous sikha in the Kutasikha's Khedakalaf where the Rebbe explains what those four are. The aggressive nature, the apathetic nature, the lost Jew who just wants to be like everybody else, or the person who lives with hypocrisy. So now, here comes the Eitzar and says, You see, you rebelled against Hashem, or at the very least, you lost your way and you let go of your shlichus. So the defendant, which is us, the Pasuk says, What do we say in response? We say, One second, these are the facts. That particular incident where I did contrary to what Hashem wants, that you could claim from me. I'm only acknowledging partial guilt. That time that I misbehaved, that time I let my shlichus slip, that I acknowledge, but I'm not saying that I'm now a rebel or that I've lost my connection with That I'm not willing to do. So what do we do with a person who is who acknowledges part of what's been claimed from them? The person who only acknowledges part of the claim against them has to take an oath in the based in which is a very serious thing. Once the person is willing to take that chance of transgressing such a serious offense by taking Hashem's name under oath to support their claim, then we believe them, okay, if you're willing to do that, you must be true, you only owe the amount that you acknowledge guilt about. So, Bi'ur Hadava Bavaydaruchnis also has a spiritual component to it, which is, we're dealing over here with a person who has messed up and has to a certain extent entered the world and jurisdiction of the Yetzirah. This is a person who's not in a very healthy spiritual place. That person needs help. This person now needs assistance to ensure that they do not fall further into the clutches of the Yetzirah. And perhaps part of the, 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 the help that they need is that they shouldn't be one of these people who folds their arms and says, I have no regrets. No, we want the person to feel bad, to acknowledge what they did, and therefore they'll have Hashem's compassion to assist them. So how do we help this person who is now struggling in the clutches of the Yetzirah, even by their own admission? So you make the person take an oath very much like we did to the Neshama before it entered this world in the first place because Shavua is Mirashon Soiva because the idea of an oath is that it represents satiating a person, empowering a person. Think about it. When you say, yes, I hope to do something Blinader, not very good chance that you'll necessarily fulfill it. But when you say, I swear I'm going to do it, you've now forced yourself to reach deeper in yourself to actually fulfill what you've committed yourself to. So the whole psychological concept of a shavua, of an oath, is that it's masbia, it empowers you, it fills you, but with higher spiritual abilities, to ensure that the part of you that has not yet been sucked into the Eitahara's plan should remain pristine and safe. Now we know that a shavua is a very serious thing. We know that a shavua is a very serious thing. The Rambam talks all about how the world was created and shakes at its very foundations if a person potentially might take Hashem's name in vain. And there's the process that they would do before a person took an oath to try and drill into them how serious it is. It's a serious business. 
So in our context, we'll be talking about a person who's slipping into the Yetzirah's realm, and we're trying to use the Shavuah as a way to rescue them. When a person undertakes a Shavuah, they're actually imperiling their own lives. Because what does a Shavuah mean in spiritual terms? We're now going to infuse you with extra spiritual energy, a gift from on high. What happens if this person does not use these extra energies to the best of their ability? Then what's the net result? Not only will the person not achieve the purpose for which they're being given this booster, but the person will actually deserve some degree of punishment. Because not only did you not use your initial abilities to serve Hashem properly, now you're wasting the extra gift that you were given. That's very serious. That's why the sages always warned us, wherever possible, avoid taking an oath. Even if the oath you're going to take is 100% true, because you're entering a world over here where you're borrowing major resources from Hashem, and you'll be liable if they're not used to the best of your ability. And that's exactly what the Gemara discusses next about the guy whose assets have depreciated. That there is sometimes a way that you could circumvent the entire possibility of an oath. How do you do that? You allow the defendant to put forward his claim first. When that happens, then he would not be painted into a corner where his only response is to take an oath. When would we do that? When would we help the defendant in this way? It's when he says, look, my assets have depreciated. I'm really not in a position to be able to pay what I have to pay. What does that mean spiritually? In order to understand that spiritually, we're going to look at a well-known story of the end of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's life. And we're going to examine a very deep and personal message that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was telling his students. So Yuvan will understand this. Let's have a look at how the Gemara describes the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. That just before he passed away, he cried and he said, why is he crying? The reason for his tears, because I have two paths right now in front of me. One goes to Gan Eden and one to the other place. And I don't know which path they will lead me on. And I should not cry. That's what the Gemara says. That's the story. Now, there's a glaring question in the story here. How is a person, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a great person of the greatest amongst the great generation of those who contributed to the Mishnah? Look how many places there are in Shas where the rabbis exaggerate almost. They, they, they can't stop giving accolades to Rabbi Yochum Zakai. He's the greatest of the great. It goes without question that Rabbi Yochum ben Zakai avoided every Avera at all costs and fulfilled every mitzvah to the best possible way. 
Yistapek He, of all people, should have a doubt as to which path they're going to take him, Gan Eden or elsewhere. Obviously, he's going to Gan Eden. It's not even a question. Plus, let's think about this logically. If this did bother him, why is it Dafka bothering him now when he's about to pass away? Yes, of course, the whole consideration of whether a person goes to Ganadin or elsewhere is a consideration dafka at the time they're about to pass away because that's when it's relevant. Still doesn't make sense. It's pretty obvious that Rabbi Yochum is real concern of you. I don't know which way they're going to take me. It's not because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka is afraid of what, how bad is it going to be in, Gan, in Gehenim. He's not worried about what punishment might be waiting for him. He's worried about who he is. Am I a decent, holy Jew or not? That's what bothers him. Consequences are a sidebar. Who am I? That's what bothers him. And if that's what bothers him, that's something that should bother a person consistently through their life. Not only as they're on their deathbed, throughout the whole of life, a person should always be grappling with it. Who am I? Am I a decent Jew or not? So why was this his concern? And why then? So one of the explanations, it's an absolutely mind-blowing explanation is what is the focus of a Jewish person? Every single one of us was given a unique purpose and mission to fulfill during the course of our lifetime. In order to fulfill our particular mission, we were each given a specific allocation of time and a specific allocation of abilities. The right amount of time and the right amount of abilities to fulfill our specific personalized mission. We were not given any extra or any short. Now what happens? What happens when a Jew doesn't use a particular day properly? Or a particular hour? Even one minute. If there's even one minute that we don't use for the specific mission, our neshama was sent down into this world. It's not like, okay, so you're missing a little piece of the puzzle. Because you didn't rise as far or as well as you should have. But any moment that any of us is not focused on fulfilling our shlichus, even if what we're doing is actually a good thing, it's a good thing, but it's not my personalized shlichus. Then that person is missing a chunk of their entire shlichus. That moment allocated to that shlichus is now absent. Worse, and this is the scary part. If I'm doing something right now, which is a beautiful thing to do, but it's not my shlichus, it's effectively a rejection of God himself. So therefore, the appropriate way that a Jewish person is supposed to live is that 24-7, I'm completely focused on what does Hashem want from me, the individual, in this moment. 
That's how Rabbi Yochum and Zakai lived. Rabbi Yochum and Zakai here, before Rega Verega, Osuk Veshokua, Bavoida Soyo Vishlichosoi. Rabbi Yochum and Zakai spent his entire life, every breathing moment of his life, totally focused on his avoider and his lichus. The way he was supposed to learn Torah, the mitzvahs in the way that he was supposed to fulfill them. He was so invested as is appropriate in his lichus. He didn't have the time or the luxury to step out of the picture to do a self-assessment. Because if I've got a minute now, that minute is for my shlichus, not for my own personal self-assessment. How could he stop in the middle of what he's supposed to be doing to think about himself? To think about his own attainment. This time is supposed to be allocated to doing the shlichus, not to thinking about, am I good, am I good, am I okay? But when it reaches the end of his life, he's about to pass away. Now he's concluding his personal life. Now's the time to do a recon, because there is no other time. Now's the time to reflect back. That's what awoke in him, this crying. Now I actually don't know where I stand, because I've never really thought about it. So, this, which is the ultimate way to fulfill our personal life, that a person should never pause to think about themselves. They should only care about what does Hashem expect of me? What is my mission right now? That is a foundational principle of how we serve Hashem. And it's the expectation from every single one of us. This is actually alluded to right towards the end of our parasha in the Psukim there, which speak about Hashem's promises that if we do what we're supposed to, we'll be looked after. After the Torah tells us that you have a responsibility to serve Hashem with absolute dedication. Which of course incorporates the entire concept of serving Hashem. Whether it represents on the one hand serving Hashem through love. As the Zoyar says. That there is no service that can compare to service out of love. And on the other hand serving Hashem through an element of awe. Which is called avoidas evet. Serving Hashem like a, like a servant, like a slave. After the Pasuk tells us that that is our imperative to serve Hashem, it then says, and if we do, there will not be, God forbid, anybody who is barren or anybody who loses children. And Hashem says, I will fill the amount of your days. It's well known in Chassidus that the concept of losing a child or, not, or, or being infertile in spiritual terms means if a person loses a child or is unable to produce a child that tells us that in spiritual terms of course it's a physical concept but in spirituality it represents that a person has love and fear of Hashem that doesn't go anywhere doesn't produce real results and real commitment why would that happen? so the Torah tells us that the Meshakel of our will be in your Eretz which implies your Ratzon in other words, your will is misguided. You're not necessarily fulfilling Hashem's will. You're running after your own interests. 
That's telling us that when a person has their own personalized interests, namely that the person wants to feel the satisfaction of their spiritual achievements. Which obviously tells us that the person is very conscious of themselves. Who I'm serving Hashem. I have achieved love and fear of Hashem. As long as the person has that sense of ego, that is most likely going to cause some kind of spiritual derailment somewhere down the line. In other words, at the beginning when a person serves Hashem, there are very severe limits on how they serve Hashem. Because look, if it's all about me, so if I'm satisfied, then I'm motivated. If it's not going to satisfy me, I'm not so motivated. So once a person's already in that headspace that says, hey, what's going to satisfy me? The next thing they're going to start saying, this I like, this I don't like. If a person identifies that there's a particular way to serve Hashem that fits with my talents, I'm in. But I'm not going to do something else because it's not comfortable or easy for me. And then they spiral out of control. And that's where you get and Akora. Spiritual effort that doesn't really lead to real results. What's the antidote? So how do you ensure that there's not going to be this collapse of the spiritual system? Says the Torah, you have to fill your days. When a person contemplates that Hashem has created a finite amount of days. That each person has been allocated a finite number of days within which they have to complete their mission in this world. And when you think about the fact that if there's one minute in the day that I'm doing something else which might be positive but is not my shlichus, if I recognize that that is a sense of rebellion against Hashem, is it's going to shake you to your core. You'll forget about ego completely. And then a person will get completely motivated and invested into their particular mission. That means that the person will reach a point that you don't even think I am fulfilling Hashem's mission. All you feel is the mission. You dissolve into the background. And to the contrary, and if somebody should come along and say, what about you? How are you doing spiritually? How much are you getting out of this experience? The person will respond in a humbled, broken way. What am I interested in? My personal issues or my personal pleasure? A certain amount of days were allocated for me. And I have to keep absolutely vigilant that I don't waste one of them. Where am I going to start thinking about me and my achievements and which part of Gan Eden am I going to? 
When a person succeeds in reaching a point of absolute dedication to Hashem's personalized shlichus and expectation from them, then then you key into the promise in this week's parasha that Hashem will fill the days of your life. How does Hashem fill the days of your life? And this is the most beautiful part of this. What happens if previously there was a time in my life I didn't know this and I wasn't this focused and I wasn't necessarily doing my shlichus properly? Maybe I even did things that were against Hashem's shlichus. The Pasuk says, I, without identifying who the I is, meaning to say an I that is beyond description, an I that is beyond levels, an I that is beyond definitions, promises you, I'll fill in the gaps. What Abish is telling us is that his essence, which is beyond any label or description, and is beyond any concept of space, beyond any space that could be tainted by us doing anything wrong. We're talking about Hashem who could never be negatively impacted by our poor choices. That is who is Maftiach, that's who promises us. That Hashem will fill in the last days of our past. And all of our days will be absolutely full. As long as now we're dedicated to the Shlichas rather than to our own personal spiritual pursuits. And that gives us the deep understanding to the second part of the halach in the Gemara, which is, When you have a scenario that the defendant's assets have depreciated, and now we've got to help him. So we create a scenario where he will not have to face up to taking the normal oath associated with somebody who acknowledges part of the guilt. The days and the energy that Hashem gives us in order to fulfill our mission, those are our truest assets, time and talent. When a person reaches a point of absolute which is the recognition that my entire being is just to represent Hashem in this world. Therefore, all of my time and all of my energy will be focused and directed on one thing, which is to fulfill Hashem's to make for Hashem a home in this world. We say to such a person, you've got such bitter, your whole concept of your assets has been so, so to speak, cheapened, as we'll see in a second. You don't have to now go fight your Yetzirah in a court, in a, in a real dispute. Because what's going to happen? If you're going to waste your time and energy trying to wrestle against your Yetzirah, you're going to waste your time and it's going to depreciate the value of your assets. The time and the gifts that Hashem gave you will be cheapened because instead of using your time and energy to serve Hashem, you'll be using your time and energy to fight your No, we don't want that to happen. So therefore Hashem accepts your time your complaint that I'm only partially involved in the Yetzirah's issues. We don't expect you to have to take a shavu and call on all kinds of deep resources that, that perhaps you won't use appropriately. 
a person who has this willingness to have bittel, I just want to do Hashem shlichus. Not only are we guaranteed that they won't fall into the clutches of the Yetzirah, we're even promised that that person will fill in the gaps of their missing years. And even whatever wasn't done properly beforehand will now be done properly or considered as if they were done properly. It's an incredibly powerful message. If we're fixated on our own spiritual development, we're going to come undone. But if we understand and appreciate that it's about total dedication to Hashem from this moment onwards, just to fulfill Hashem's mission, then we get the greatest bruchas of safety from our own Yetzirah and even to fill in whatever spiritual gaps we may have in our past.